If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ad. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. And this podcast, in actual fact, the next two podcasts are going to be a few musings on Europe, the continent of Europe, that is, because I have been traveling around a little bit, John, around the continent. Well, I've actually been traveling. I'm in Berlin, but we're going to have a discussion about yesterday when I was in Brussels. Right. So you're just, you're hoboing around Europe. I am like, yeah, exactly. I'm jumping on the back of trains. What do you got tree style? What do you got tree? Exactly. Exactly. I got a night train jump, which is a really nice way to travel between Brussels and Berlin on a new company called Eurosleeper last night, right? Right. Leaves Brussels at 7 p.m., arrived this morning in Berlin at around 8 a.m. Nice. But Interesting, right? So in my head, and I paid quite a lot for this, right? Because it's much more expensive than flying, right? Right. But in Orient my head, Express I, kind of stuff, is it? Yeah. So in my head, I thought, you know, <laughs> I'll sit down, I'll write for a little bit, then maybe I'll go to the restaurant, maybe have a little glass of claret or two, just to <laughs> get myself in the mood, see a little bit of lobster bisque or whatever. And, <laughs> of course, uh, of course. As I'm moseying through Europe, and it goes from Brussels to Antwerp to Rotterdam, Amsterdam, and then across to Berlin. So I thought, well, by the mm. time I reach Rotterdam, I'll be, you know, I'll be, be right. Time to write and then go back to my little couchette tonight, you know. And uh, so I had this this sense, because I've traveled once or twice on night trains between Milan and Munich before. Nice. Unfortunately, the rolling stock of this new train, I'm not going to condemn it because it's a really good idea and it's the right thing to do for the environment to get trains around if you can. Yeah. But the rolling stock of this train, right, I actually did a little bit of sleuthing when I realized, okay, right, was Slovakian, made in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s. Right, okay, Jesus, that's old. No Wi-Fi, no air con, right? Okay, fine, I don't really worry about this. No restaurant, no food. What? How long, how long is the journey? It's a 14-hour journey. No electricity what? points. Absolutely no docking points for any sort of stuff, right? So you're sitting there facing the prospect of this long journey 
And I arrived in, and of course, initially I had a little bit of a hissy fit. I thought, oh my good God, I paid a fortune for this, right? You know, <laughs> Of course you did. Right? Because I was, I was, first of all, I was looking around to recharge the, the laptop. Yeah. So, oh, okay. And then after my sleuthing, it was in the late 1980s and early 90s, I traveled a lot around Eastern Europe in trains. Yeah. And I just had that feeling, right, that this is exactly what it was like. And what, what fascinated me is in the beginning I thought, ooh, you know, I'm not into this, you know. And yeah. I was talking to some poor train manager. And then you realize you sound like a total knob. This is a poor guy doing his job, right? Wouldn't and be you're the first saying, time. You're saying, well, that's <laughs> exactly. And you're saying, you know, do you realize there's no food in this? And the poor yeah. guy's looking and saying, yeah, you should have grabbed a sambo on the way out, right? Anyway. Oh, my God. So, that, so this is great. Right? Outrageous. But, then, but then, then something really struck me, right? So we're going through the countryside. It's a lovely mm. night. It's the other night's really hot, warm European summer's night. So you just open the window, right? Like you would have done in the 1970s, right? Yeah. You've no Wi-Fi, so you just read a book. Yeah. You've no laptop, so you don't worry about going online. There's no air con, but do you really give a shit? Yeah, because the breeze comes in the window. The window's open and it's a beautiful yeah. night. Right? It's the yeah. longest, it was the longest day of the year, the, the 21st of June. 21st, yeah. And then something really struck me, you know, was that this is how the economy evolves, okay? This is when I was sitting there Ooh. thinking, right? So I am on a train that is from the era before the internet. This is what struck me. Mm. So it's the world before Moore's Law, the world before quantum computing, before semiconductors, before microchips, right? The yeah, whole yeah. experience was like stepping back into the late 1980s. And then you realize there's something fascinating here. This is how the economy evolves. So remember, we've talked about Schumpeter all the time, right? And every mm. new invention creates adjacent inventions and adjacent innovations, right? Yeah. And are, yeah. they trigger one innovation after another, after another, after another. And this is how the economy adjusts, right? So I was thinking then as I was pondering going through the lowlands before I went onto the North German plain, right? Yeah. What has happened to trains is the smartphone, the internet changed everything, even the design of trains. But nobody who was designing trains at the time thought, oh my goodness, here's the internet. I'm going to have to change the design of the train, right? So when the internet arrived, and this is why the economy evolves, it doesn't grow. Mm. Suddenly people decided, okay, well, you know, I'm going to work now. Okay, so yeah. they certainly have to adjust the train carriage for laptops. So I'd been on the Eurostar coming from London. Every Eurostar carriage has a little table for laptops, right? Yeah. So suddenly, because of the internet, the market for little tables on trains explodes. And the people who make little tables on trains suddenly see a demand that they never saw before. So there's yeah. a demand for little table makers yeah. on trains, yeah. right? And nobody had predicted this. When, when the, let's say when the internet started, right? Nobody says, oh, do you know what? This is going to have a profound impact on the interior design of trains, right? Nobody said this. Okay? I know, I'm going to set up a little table company. <laughs> exactly, a little table company. So I was thinking of the little table company people, right? And then, yeah. of course, you realise, you know, not just that, but smartphones demand docking points. Yeah. So suddenly electricians have to be called in to do... Yeah, rewire the whole train, yeah. Precisely. So smartphones demand electricity points and computers demand electricity points. So suddenly you get a massive increase in as you said, the demand for rewiring experts, yeah, for fellows yeah. who pull out panels and put in electric cables yeah. in the back of it, right? And then I was thinking, okay, what else has happened, right? You know, suddenly then people, of course, who were working on trains didn't want the sound of the outside. So you get trains with no windows. And trains right. with no windows means you have to have air con in the trains with no windows. 
Yeah, yeah. So suddenly what you see is this is like when you're in a vehicle that was designed for the 1970s and you're a creature from the 21st century, what you realize is that the way the economy has evolved is that the internet has changed the most minute little details of how we live. And those minute little details have created an entirely new dynamic for a whole new industry. Mm. And this whole new industry is the way in which everything evolves. And then, of course, what happens is things that you don't ever imagine to be related to each other, like smartphones and little tables and little table <laughs> yeah. makers, end up being entirely involved with each other, right? And involved with each other. So as I was... You know, I got over my little hump, right? I'm a little huff, right? Yeah. And I didn't have my bottle of claret, unfortunately. But I did get an old beer, right? It was a little yeah. small. And it was, was a it warm. I bet it was well. warm, was it? It was warm. It was warm, right? <laughs> okay. And the funniest thing is then the guy who arrived in, and by this stage now, we were, we were actually taking the piss out of each other because I, yeah. I had cooled down. We were starting to chill out. And then you just realize that what is fascinating about the human is the humans put up with anything. After about half an hour, you're fine. You don't want it. You don't want. You don't need the internet. You actually yes. don't need it. Yeah. Right. And you don't need powerpoints. Have you ever travelled much by train in India? Of course not, John. Well, <laughs> uh, let me tell you, I did when I was in India. <laughs> I know. I remember that. Tell us about it. Back in the nineties. Well, I just tell you this one story. I've I spent days upon days on trains, and you know there was a few of the the journeys were you know fifteen hours, few were thirty hours, and there was one train journey. It was two train journeys, actually, but it was one journey was 56 hours. So I know that I at the, I I, it, was, it was madness. But but it's, it's actually a wonderful. And, and back to your point about having no Internet and stuff, you start talking to everybody. And, you start and, chatting and, away, yeah. And it's, it's and amazing. That- but there was one particular journey, and I was coming out of Madras when it was Madras, coming out of Chennai, end destination was Delhi. And the train took off, drove for about half hour, stopped then took off again for another little bit, stopped. And this kept happening. I was going, oh, people are getting annoyed and all the rest. So in one of the stops, I got up, got off the train, walked up to the front of the train, to the engine, and there was this big crowd of people standing in front of the train, all milling around, looking at the track. And I kind of made my way through. And I swear to God, there was the train driver with a saw and a tree (laughs) trunk filling in the gaps in, in the track. With a tree oh, trunk. I just love to it. Get to, that is it fantastic. was unbelievable. That is fantastic. <laughs> you know, interestingly, you do whatever you have to do yeah. to make things work, right? Yeah. And this is exactly what I was thinking, like about, about how the economy works. You know, like, you know, it's impossible to model what happened to train travel as a result of the internet, right? Yeah. Mathematically, it's impossible to model that, right? So what happens is economists, because they can't model this, right, make assumptions in the models that actually not only are not relevant to reality, but actually contradict reality. So as Mm. I was sitting there, maybe it's only me, John, who'd be in the middle of the night, half awake, thinking, hmm, does this explain to me how the economy works? And I think, yes, it does. But what I would say to everybody (laughs) is that it's a lovely journey. You put the head down. I'm reading a new book as well, a new novel called Yellow Face, which is really very good. It's a new American novel. I'll keep you up to date on that. The fantastic thing about train journeys is you have time. Everything slows right mm. down. Everything slows Yeah, you right are down. at the mercy of, of uh, the train. And actually, it's interesting when you said about there's no windows and stuff. You know, there is something 
about modern trains that's actually quite restrictive in that way. Yes. Because you don't have the freedom to open the window, get it, smell the air as you're going through the countryside, exactly. all that kind of stuff. Yes. And you're yeah, stuck with, with air con. That's what I'm saying. So like we're, we're like this, you know, all I'm advising people is one, get the train because we should support, I think, this company, any company that's trying to reintroduce train travel in Europe, right? I also think that it's very, very expensive vis-a-vis flying. So what... Yeah governments should do, if they're really serious about the green agenda, they should subsidize these train companies. Heavily, heavily, heavily subsidized. I know many train companies are, are subsidized, but you know the way France has actually stopped internal flights, right? So you cannot fly yeah. from Paris to to Marseille if there is an alternative train journey. And mm. this is the way in which the green economy is going to grow, right? And at the okay. moment, it's kind of teething problems. And then I asked the guy, I said, well, what's the story with the old stock? Because ironically, John, the train from Kiev to the Polish border was better than the train from Brussels to Berlin. And I said this to the (laughs) geezer, because at this stage we were getting on, drinking our warm beers, having a chat in the carriage, right? (laughs) There's a whole load of us just chit-chat, right? And he was saying that what is impossible to get now, and this comes back to supply chains and the pandemic, right? Is that there isn't enough rolling stock in Europe to compete with or to actually satisfy the demand for rail journeys. Oh, right. So he was saying about the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have kept their rail system alive all mm. through, not just the war, but all through the last 20 years. So they have their own reasonably modern rolling stock that they've built in Ukraine. But the, the problem is that when you're going looking, so this new company, this Eurosleeper, is going mm. looking for rolling stock, they can't get any, except this old freaking Skoda shite from Czechoslovakia. But does, a, the, but does that mean that they're, they're diesel trains then? No, I think the, the engines are, are reasonably modern. It's just the actual carriages are really right. old. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You know, to the extent that they, do, they don't have any electricity on them. Right? Right. So you can't plug anything in, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But you, in a way, you're kind of freed from the modern world for, for 20, not 24 hours, but like 12 hours. And then, of course, you wake up in Berlin, you go for a snooze. Now, in fairness, the old, the old bed was more like a souffle than a bed. It wasn't the firmest, right? <laughs> Obviously, half of the Czechoslovakian army had slept there before <laughs> me, right? And it was like a pudding bed. You're going to sink into it like a big souffle, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So you wake up a little bit, a little bit monkey. But then you wake up in Berlin and uh, you're there. No queues, no yeah. hassles. It was absolutely wonderful. And uh, I can advise, I could, not advise, I'd encourage anybody, if, you've got, if you have a choice, between flying around the continent and getting these trains to get these night trains. Oh, there's something much more romantic about it as well, train travel, you know, and, and that yeah. kicking war, back. Yeah, war, warm beer, and romantic, I'm not sure. But there is, there is something old about it. Yes, and, and maybe what you need to do the next time is bring a picnic basket. With your John, clarity, I'll your bring bottle you, of clarity. I'll bring you on a picnic basket. Okay? I, look, I look forward to it, Mike. <laughs> you know, exactly, yeah, exactly. I'll bring you on a date on our romantic <laughs> thing in the train. But anyway, there you have it. That's my, that's my spiel. The spiel is, if you look for it, John, you can see economics everywhere. Yes, that's indeed. That's the moral of the story. That's the moral of the story. So, so tell me it, this. What was, the, what was the purpose of your trip to Belgium okay. and Berlin? Okay, John. Well, John, you know that I have a weakness for obscure things. And I have been, <laughs> indeed, for many, many years, obsessed with an artefact that is in the Belgian Museum of Natural Sciences, right? Okay. And the little artefact 
that I'm obsessed with is a thing called the Ishango bone. And the Ishango bone was probably the femur of some mammal, maybe a baboon. It was discovered in the 1950s in an area called Ishango, which is now in Congo, very close to the Rwandan border. Yeah, yeah. And Belgian archaeologists found it. I'm going to tell you a bit about the Belgians in a second, right? But the Belgian archaeologists found it. And what they were intrigued by was this looked to them like the very first evidence of mathematics because the Ishango bone has lots of lots of different little notches in them equating to real both prime numbers, okay, Mm. which is extraordinary, and addition and subtraction. So there's a lot, like all these things, there's a huge academic shitstorm over what it actually is, but nobody denies that it is the earliest evidence of mathematics. Well, how old is it? Now, this is amazing. 20,000 years old. Wow. 20,000 years old. So I'll give you, we'll draw back the lens before we go to the Ashango bone. So I was really excited. I have a photo. <laughs> I'll send you a photo of it. <laughs> you were giddy with excitement. I was very giddy. I was very, well, I love these sort of places, you know, the Science Museum, and, and I love all that carry on. But, anyway, yeah. but I also went to some place that I didn't want to go to, but I wanted to see, which is, and this is the... The biggest oxymoron is the name, okay? It's called the Royal Belgian Museum for Central Africa. If you can think of anything more terrifying, given what the Belgians did in Central Africa, all the stuff we talked about casement. So it's for my research on casement, I went there, right? Now, somebody said the Belgians don't have a sense of humor. They have a wicked sense of humor, but it's a little bit cruel, I suspect, right? (laughs) Because the Royal Belgian Museum for Central Africa is a museum of plundered sculptures and artwork, which was robbed from the Africans. So it's a bit like the British Museum in London. (laughs) Exactly, exactly the same. Not only that, and the Pergamon Museum, which I might go down to see here in Berlin, because I like all that carry-on, right? I might do that later on today. But what I'm going to say to you, Jonas, not only did they rob all the stuff, but they built the fucking museum with the proceeds of the robbed stuff because they traded the African artifacts, oh, right? Geez. Think yeah, about this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And where they housed the museum was a massive building in a place called Tervuren, which is about 30 minutes outside Brussels, in a massive neo-colonial splendid sort of palace built with the proceeds of the ivory and rubber trade that King Leopold himself owned personally. He owned the entire place. So the Congo Free State, which was set up by King Leopold under the auspices that he was going to be an anti-slavery campaigner, right? Mm. Turned into the killing fields of Africa. They believed that maybe half the Congo's population were murdered, right? Murdered in the pursuit of rubber and ivory, mainly rubber. Which brings us to casement. We've done that before. We can, anybody wants to hear about that, we can do it again at some stage, right? So I go there to have a look at the art, but also to have a look at this kind of bizarrely dysfunctional place, right? Now, the sophistication of the art from those African tribes is phenomenal. Mm, It's really well worth seeing. And of course, there's a big debate, of course, of who owns it. Of course, the Africans own it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have, you know, and I'm not sure if the Belgians are any different to the British in terms of who's given the stuff back. But what is fascinating is you really understand that these cultures in Africa, in that part of Africa, were visual cultures. They weren't written cultures. So they haven't got their legacy written down. So their heritage is the art. And by robbing the art, John, the Belgians robbed these people of their 
heritage, of their legacy, of their link to their own forefathers, right? Yeah. Because they yeah. have a massive oral tradition punctuated by these works of art. So it's an extraordinary place, right? Extraordinary. I found it very chilling. Very, this very chilling. This is kind of, do you remember we had Nisha McSweeney on a little while ago? And she was yes. talking about the the attitudes and the views of non-Western people, non-Europeans, non-Americans towards yeah. the West. And, you know, and we're scr- sitting here scratching our heads. Well, wh- why don't they like us? And this is, this is, these, this is, this is one of the many yeah, reasons yeah. why. The wholesale robbing of the culture. So but yeah. leave that aside. We might, we might come back. And the, but the thing about the Belgians is they were not unique, right? The Brits were at the mm. same game. Right, British Museum, as you've talked about before. There's an amazing museum here in Berlin called the Pergamon Museum, right? Which was about a city which was basically beside Troy in in what's now Turkey. Turkey. Yeah. And the Germans the Germans just robbed it wholesale. The whole thing, they just took it apart and brought it back to Germany. It's here in there's a thing called the Museum Island in Berlin, which is fascinating if you're into all that carry on. Right. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's the same idea. But I come back, let's come back to the bone. Go on. So the Ashango bone is in the science museum, not in this museum of plunder and what it shows us is that there was a civilization this is the most interesting thing that there was a civilization twenty thousand years ago john which used sophisticated mathematics fifteen thousand years before the egyptians or the sumerians right now that wow. i find fascinating Whoa. right fifteen thousand yeah. years before the egyptians and what basically happened here is that there was a massive, massive... Do you remember we had Frank Capon on talking about volcanoes and, and changing in yeah, climate change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a massive sort of Pompeii-esque moment, archaeologists believe, in this area of Central Africa. And this civilization was entirely, entirely covered with ash. And then over years and years, basically, vegetation regrew, yes, as it course. always does. Yeah, yeah. And that's why there's so much of it preserved. But when you think about that, that in what we know to be Central Africa, there was a civilization that was so sophisticated that it was dealing with incredibly sophisticated mathematics thousands of years before we think that mathematics actually was first invented, which was, we believe, in Samaria or in the Egyptian world, right? Babylonian or Egyptian world, right? So this podcast is going to be on the history of mathematics because this is what intrigued me. So this is what I was doing in Belgium. And the extraordinary thing is that we, and I've always felt that what annoys me is that so many kids leave school with no sense of mathematics. They leave school hating maths and they never make the link between maths and reason and precision and logic, all that sort of stuff, right? So what I've always said is maths moves us from superstition to proof, from conjecture to fact, and from guesswork to certainty. Now, Humans simply wouldn't exist without mathematics. That's the key, right? Okay, Mac, hang on. Let's explore this a little bit further after a bit of this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Mike, we're talking there about maths and, and how a lot of kids coming out of school don't really have an appreciation of, of maths or a deep understanding of it. I know from my perspective, I had an appreciation of maths. I just wasn't very good at it. And I actually put that down to the way it's taught, you know, getting it out of the abstract and, and bringing it alive into the real world. But you're absolutely right. There, there's something lost about the story of maths. The story, that's what I'm saying. So the story of maths, John, is the story of humanity. That's what I'm saying, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's what had me in this thing, looking at this ancient bone, which was, you know, 20,000 years old. It wasn't yeah. the, I wasn't just intrigued by the thing in itself. I was fascinated by the fact that there was a civilization. But what much more interests me is that the story of humanity, how we have evolved to a species which is driven more by precision and reason and logic and fact, that is inextricably linked with numbers. Inextricably mm. linked with numbers, numerics, counting, assessing, where you can actually say, there's a bit of guesswork, but I can actually give you the numerical fact and how that changes our brains and how that is. I, I, I really would go so far as to say that humans without maths are not the species that we think we are. That maths mm. has actually unbelievably influential in affecting the way our brains work. And it's just from the, the fact that humans chit-chat, as you always say, chit-chat and trade and, and therefore economies evolve and then the, the need for maths for that economy to function yeah, is, exactly. is the key to it. Yeah, that's, that's the key. So basically what we know is you have the Ashango bone and then, of course, that's 20,000 years ago. And then, of course, we don't see maths re-emerging until about 5,000 years ago, right? Mm. But the, you have to assume that basically what was happening over that 15,000 years is people were nomadic and then they were sedentary for a while and they were back to nomadic again and they were it's almost like they were kind of dealing they were kind of like gardening right that agriculture at the beginning was like gardening maybe yeah. do a little bit of gardening one year and then maybe you don't do it next year and anyway so <laughs> we, we've no evidence of mathematics right but we were gradually moving towards one of the biggest inventions that humans have ever come up with which is agriculture yes. agriculture is an amazing yeah. invention right and then of course agriculture societies become sedentary they're sitting down for quite some time and then as mm. you're sitting down, what you know is you start, they start to trade. And then if you start to trade, you've got to count. And if you start to count, then you've got to figure out numbers. So that's why if you look at the civilizations of Sumer and Akkad and Assyria, and, and then, of course, Egypt, what the Mesopotamians had. Yeah, Mesopotamia yeah. meaning between two rivers in Greek. And the two rivers are the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's okay? it, yeah. Right? And that's where, for example, if you're into Zeus and all that, 
the Greeks believed that Zeus created humanity between these two rivers in Mesopotamia. And that's because the Greeks were trying to figure out where they came from. Yes. Right? Yeah, because yeah, the yeah, Mesopotamians yeah. predated them by a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand years, right? But what we know is that the Mesopotamians had a numerical system and it was a vertical V wedge, which represented one, and a horizontal wedge, which represented 10. So they could write maths in a very, yeah. very basic yeah. way. But they had no concept of zero and they had no understanding of zero as kind of a placeholder, as a positional marker. So they didn't have any notions of 10 or hundreds or thousands. And once you don't have zero, you can't conceive of really big numbers. Because yeah. zero yeah, allows yeah. us to conceive of really big numbers. And then you go to the Egyptians and they had the hieroglyphics and you see that they're beginning to solve, amazingly, the Egyptians are beginning to solve equations. And the reason they wanted equations is because they were obsessed with geometry. And the reason they were obsessed with geometry is because they wanted to tax the land on the delta of the Nile, right? The right. land, so they had to okay. measure the land to figure mm. out how much tax there was going to be, right? And then you have a kind of coincidence with that, the Babylonians, right? And they're beginning to use columns of integers, you know, these things like ABC, that you mm. begin to use what we would look like spreadsheets. There are spreadsheets yes. in yeah, yeah. the Babylonian world, which is kind of mad. So like the first Excel spreadsheet <laughs> is in, God forbid, this thing that has terrorized yeah. thousands of people, right? Of columns and rows and figuring out, yeah. you know, relationships. I bet they came these, up with the clipboard too. They, <laughs> they did come up with they, they came up with everything. These were the Babylonians. So they're, what, you're, what they're doing in there and looking at the stars and trying to figure out ratios and, and cycles and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, and then of course the Babylonians passed stuff on to the Greeks. And the Egyptians passed it on to the Greeks. And then, of course, we get Pythagoras, we get Euclid. All these things are beginning the process of us evolving into the species that we are using mathematics. And, of course, hmm. the Chinese were miles ahead of everything. Look, basically, John, the whole thing is that when you look back at economic history, everything comes from China, right? Everything, right? Right, okay. Everything. Money, mathematics, right. watches, fireworks, gunpowder, everything. They were miles ahead, right? Yeah. But, of course, the people who robbed from the Chinese were the Indians, right? And the Indians after Christ, okay, when we decided to go into the Dark Ages mm. in, the, in Northwest Europe, the Indians were obsessed with zero. And zero was the way the Indians figured out everything. Because then you can have negative numbers, yeah. and you can have yeah. positive numbers. And then with zero as a place, you can actually have tens and thousands and millions and tens of millions, right? So the Indians opened the world into figuring out massive big numbers by using zero. And of course, the Arabs then, Invade of the Mughal Empire, right? Yeah. So the Arabs begin to invade and spreading Islam, both west and east. They get to the east and they say, fuck this math shit. These guys, this is really interesting. Yeah. And the Arabs take Indian Hindu numerals, like R12345, that's all comes from India. They take that and zero, and they bring it back to Arabia. So Arabia, and this is what Nisha McSweeney is talking about, Yeah, you know, in, in the great cities, like Baghdad being the greatest city in the world at that time, they were full of fellas doing maths. And a very interesting guy, in 820 AD, John, there's a geezer called Al-Khwazimi, right? Who was yeah. a polymath Persian. And he wrote this thing called Al-Jar, which became Algebra. Right, so okay, can you okay, imagine yeah. the Persians were doing, and the Arabs were actually doing Algebra, while we were still counting on our fingers. Yeah. This was and the if, golden age of, of Islam, though, wasn't it? When, yeah. As you say, that we were going, as Europeans, going back into a kind of a dark age after the Romans, that in the Middle East, they were discovering 
all sorts of stuff in science and physics and maths and astrology and all sorts, or astronomy, yeah, the, I should the, say. The, 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 and astrology. How, how, how's, I'm a Leo. What are you, John? <laughs> yeah. Aquarius. Aquarius. Yes, it's, it's lovely. My, our stars are aligned. But you know, you're, you're absolutely right. So what you have is this amazing flourishing of poet, poetic stuff like Rumi and all that great Arabic poetry, right? And high art and amazingly intricate, intricate paintings. And of course, mathematics. So mm, what I'm mm. saying is that maths is part of our evolution as a species. And that's yeah. the story. And this is why the story is so fascinating. And of course, eventually the Europeans caught up, right? Yeah. But we robbed all their ideas. We robbed zero from them. We robbed algebra from them, everything, right? And eventually you get Copernicus and Galileo and all that good stuff. And you move up to the present day, up to the Einsteins of this world. And yeah. Einstein, it's so funny when you're in Berlin, you you get the sense, right, that this is the city of Einstein and all those amazing sort of characters as well as the unpleasantness that, ha that happened here. But what's fascinating is that scientific discovery using maths, John, is this process of standing on the shoulders of giants that every great mathematician just took a little bit from the last one yeah. and disseminated yeah. it and changed it. And the also the fascinating thing about science is that scientific progress depends on being wrong, not right. And this is a fascinating thing because progress in science always leaves in its wake a really clever person who was wrong. Yeah, because yeah, that's, yeah. How we, that's how we prove things. So the, the fascinating thing about science and maths is that the very progress that we need requires that brilliant people were wrong. So in a way, science is very humbling because... Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Mac, a good example of that is Einstein himself. Yeah. Where, now, I don't pretend to understand all of this, but <laughs> the general theory of relativity is incompatible with quantum physics, apparently, in some way or other, <laughs> I don't know, to do with locally acting forces and, and, and stuff that's way above my head. But it doesn't mean that Einstein was wrong, but it doesn't mean that he was entirely right either. And it's things like this that lead to a paradigm shift in our understanding of science and physics and, and the universe, I, I, I which love is the really way, exciting. I love the way John Davis has just called out Einstein and says, Albert, <laughs> Albert, I know you have a few fans knocking around, but you know what? Your yeah. time is up. Yeah, so your time's is, up. Come this in, is, Albert. This is, yeah, Albert, yeah, come in now, right? With your, with, your mad, with your mad Barnet. But I mean, so this is what excites me, John, is that we've been teaching, we've been doing maths for thousands of years. We have mathematical universities. We've all this. So for example, you get this huge acceleration in mathematical understanding with Gutenberg and the printing press, right? Mm, mm. And, and we know, this is the fascinating thing, that the pay of professors after Gutenberg of maths and science goes through the roof and professors of the classics, their pay goes through the floor. Now, why is that? Because the opening of science, as it does still now, fascinates people about the future. And more and more people moved into what would be kind of, you know, the STEM subjects of the 17th century, right? And what you see is this change in people's expectations. So you get maths is beginning to disseminate through society. This, of course, changes people's views of superstition, John. So you can't have a mathematically rigorous society and a religious society at the same time. Because at every stage, maths is beginning to disprove the superstition of religion. Yeah, so you have all these, yeah, you know, true. You know, so you, you know, the role of maths in destabilizing religious orthodoxy is, again, one that we may well plow into, John. This may well be a podcast in the future, but 
you know, what really fascinates me, and this comes back to your point that you made at the very start, right, is that this story going from Africa, evolution, mathematics, bringing it through the Greeks and through the Egyptians and then into ancient China and then into India and to the Arabs. You know, this, this story of the progression of maths is the story of human evolution or a mm. story of human evolution, right? So when you go in to learn maths in school, John, teachers aren't telling you, look, this is the story of humanity that you're learning. Yeah, and then yeah. kids just see these sterile graphs and equations and they just think... Mm, it's all a bit abstract. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, part of teaching is about making the abstract tangible. Yeah. So look, saying, consider this. What do you think of this? Imagine this. And suddenly the kids are like, oh, okay, that all makes sense in my head. Mm. And so what I've just thought, John, as I was getting up with my creak in my neck after my train journey this morning, <laughs> contemplating the history of mathematics, okay? Yeah. And, and of course, the history of economics, because economics and maths are so exactly. intertwined. Yeah. A, you can see economics everywhere. I'm like one of those weird evangelical Christians who sees Jesus everywhere. You know those ones? Yeah, or, right? or from that film, The Sixth Sense, I see dead people. <laughs> yes, exactly. I see economists everywhere. So I'm sitting there with my sixth sense of the economy, number one. And number two, I also see, when I was in Belgium earlier, this idea of the progression of humanity through the lens of mathematics. And I really believe, you know, if we were to get the kids in, you know, whatever age they are, eight or nine, when they first begin to start counting or whatever, and tell mm. them every day, this is the story of your ancestors. And this is the story of how we became the creature we are and how human nature blends and how our brains have changed and how our brains have become much more numerical and the numerical society changes the way we see the world. Imagine telling kids that. Yeah, yeah. They would just see, like, there is beauty in maths, but you need to tell the story properly. And in order to tell the story properly, you have to have this arc. You know, where do we start? Where are we ending? Why are we learning this stuff? And particularly in a world of, you know, AI, etc. you know, the AI machines will be able to do the technical mathematics. Yeah. So you have to equip humans with something else to keep them interested. And I think that the evolutionary story, imagine starting the story in Africa 20,000 years ago, telling kids there's a lost civilization buried beneath a volcano. And there was all these ancient maths nerds scratching notches on a baboon's femur. And they were figuring things out. I mean, I'd sit up and listen, wouldn't you? Absolutely. So there you go. I'm off now, John, into a dungeon because I'm in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> and I will, I will do the next podcast through a gimp suit in Bergheim. Okay? Gimponomics. Gimponomics. We'll talk to you in a couple of days. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.